Today we're going to be in John 1, starting with verse 19. And now this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. They said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So John's, uh, John the Baptist's advent is actually in all four Gospels. There's not a whole lot of information that's in all four of them. They each speak about Christ's life and teachings from a different perspective, and they, they're in harmony. But the ones that are really in all four Gospels, this is important. This is God's mandate to John the Baptist. And we saw some of this when we covered the first part of chapter 1 a few weeks ago. So the religious leaders are coming out. They're sending scouts. They're vetting John the Baptist, and they had every right to because they were supposed to be the vanguards, the purveyor of spiritual purity. But there was one problem. They themselves had become corrupt. It became a business. Now, this isn't just from biblical sources. You can read Roman history, and it'll tell you the same thing. So there's a harmony there. And I suppose when ministry becomes a a machine or a business, power, money, corruption, and and we have the same problems today as we had 2,000 years ago and all throughout the millennia. There's that temptation to do it, to get a personal gain. And this is what these leaders were doing. But the religious leaders asked, who are you? And John replied with scripture. They should have known. They should have known. And I'm going to cover two points. One is willful ignorance. And the second point is that the word, when the word doesn't penetrate anymore. He said, there's one coming that you do not know. Isn't that sad? These guys knew the scripture. They memorized the scripture. They taught the scripture. But they didn't know. They didn't know the Messiah. And they didn't know John as the forerunner. I submit to you because they didn't want to know. Because what would have happened if they would have studied the scripture, if they would have applied it to John and applied it to Jesus? They would have had a change of lifestyle. And they weren't prepared for that. The leaders would have taken a back seat. Now, I think at this point, because I speak a lot about the the obligation of leadership, but there's also an obligation of those who are following, especially in light of the New Testament, where all of us are called to be a part of the body of Christ. So I'm going to get into both today. You know, at the time, uh, John the Baptist, at some point, was put in prison, and Herod was afraid of the people because they revered him as a prophet. But it's very interesting, and I don't know the delay between the time that John was in prison and the time that they took his head off. But I wonder, did the crowd suddenly say, ah, nothing new here, we're going to move on to our lives? Maybe Herod saw there was not much of an outcry for John, and he said, well, I can kill him now. 
And there was really no consequences. The same thing with Jesus. In the beginning of the week, the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, hail the Messiah. By the end of the week, they were saying, crucify him. Now, certainly there were competing voices in the crowd, but the ones who should have been standing up for him were not. Were not. So we're going to talk about today leadership's responsibility and those responsibility of all of us, the average person, the average believer, who's listening to God's word. You see, God's word cuts deep. We see this in Hebrews 4. It causes conviction. It cuts right through our soul. But there are some that say, no, no, no. I want to put up the Kevlar vest. I want to put up the titanium. I don't want it piercing my heart. And they get scared. And they do weird things because of it. The second point is that God's word wasn't penetrating. Not that it doesn't have the ability to do it, but because of free choice and free will, they were not allowing it to penetrate. You know, some grow up in the Christian culture and think just because they go to a Bible-believing church or their parents are saved that they're saved. That's not necessarily the case. Some may have all the right answers, but don't live it. And at times, you know, there's a... You deal with a person that maybe for years has been hearing the truth of the word, have gone through several books, and then when something personal comes into their lives, or they don't get their way, they get angry and they leave. You try to point out the scripture to them, and they don't want to hear it. And unfortunately, there are other pastors in the area and other churches that take a very soft approach on sin, and it's an easy way to escape and find that comfort that they're looking for. There's another phenomenon that I've talked to uh, many pastors about. I'm constantly in, uh, you know, trying to see what the culture's like, what the what the issues are in the church, and and we'll get into some of that. But another phenomenon: if somebody gets angry and they leave, they try to pull as many people away from the church as possible. That's demonic. We covered this in the men's group in Revelation. uh, I believe it was 12 that it says that Satan was able to draw a third of the angels, a third of the stars out of heaven. What could God have done that would cause those third to listen to Satan? He spoke to Eve in the garden, and he said, did God really say these things? And he basically said to Eve, God's not looking out for you. You know, you can be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to open your eyes. Come with me. And that's what led to the fall. Even in John 6, we'll come to The best ministry on the planet, Jesus' ministry. You get the impression, because it says many of the disciples followed him no more. There was only the 12 left. Remember the 70 that went two by two? They were gone, because Jesus ramped up the teaching. He turned up the heat. But then what's really a blessing is to see those that are changed by the word, that will come forward and be honest about their lifestyle and say, you know what, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to change. I want to be discipled by the word. That's the blessing. In verse 23, John characterizes himself. Now, this was his big chance to elevate himself, but he didn't do it. And he said, I'm one crying in the wilderness. Now, that word crying, it wasn't that John, they saw John and he was, he was in tears. You know, he was drowning in his tears. The word for crying, if you study the Greek word, is more of a, I think it's boao. It's the lowing of an ox. It's a deep lowing of an ox. He's crying out to these people. It's a different application than what we would understand crying. He was the plow. This comes all the way back from Isaiah 40. He's fulfilling that scripture. John had to plow the hearts of the people because they were so hardened. And and Jesus came to plant the seeds of the gospel. But the ground was hard. And if you've done any farming, you know you can't just throw seeds on top of the ground. You've got to break it up. 
John was the original heartbreaker. And I don't mean in the Justin Bieber fashion. I mean, you know, he was there to break their hearts. Hey, guys, you guys are hard, man. I've got to break this ground up to receive the word. And we see the same thing happen today. We have a hard-hearted society. People come in, and they want to have the seeds on top of that hard ground, but it hasn't been broken up. And we're going to speak about repentance as well, as John speaks about. Luke adds um, a little bit more to that. He adds the line, and this is in Isaiah 40, the fifth verse, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that's the gospel message. Jesus was the embodiment of the salvation of God. That's why he was sent here. Okay, the, you know, we've sinned. We've, we need to repent. We need to change course. We need to change direction. And the Lord sent his Messiah so that we could have salvation freely. But there's sometimes a cost. Well, there's always a cost in following the Lord. The deeper we follow the Lord, the more we have to give up things. The more we have to stop compromising. Okay? And again, John said very little about himself because it was all about Jesus. He didn't take the glory away from the Lord. In verse 25, they said, why do you baptize? Now, understand the history, and, and as I go through the scripture, I have to constantly give you a historical framework and background because it, it, it really opens things up there. I mean, we can understand the scripture plainly, but just to give you a better uh, feel for what's going on there, uh, the Jews at the time when the pagans would come to Judaism and be attracted to God, the monotheistic God, they would baptize them. They would put them in water, and it was a symbolic ceremony. So here comes John the Baptist, according to Jesus, the, the greatest prophet that ever lived, and he's baptizing Jews. So they're saying to him, you know, why are you doing this? Basically, we're the chosen people. They relied too much on heritage, tradition, when the spirituality was suffering. They had a false sense of eternal security. What about today? At the Young Adults Group on Friday, I actually filled in for Pastor Vinny because he was away. And I was asked a question by a 24-year-old about his culture. And I kind of made the comparison between when I was that age, and I really was decades ago, and these young adults now. And he was speaking about the difficulty that he has in trying to tell them the truth. And I said, you know, when I was your age, my generation, we were drinking and drugging and partying and, and crazy. And we either wanted Jesus or you didn't. It was very black and white. And I actually feel for the younger generation now because it's different. Because there's a smorgasbord table out there. And instead of saying, I know I said, I'm wrong. I know my lifestyle is bad. I know I need the Lord. But today, for the young people, there's so many choices. A lot of them call themselves Christians. But unfortunately, they look at the smorgasbord table of the different theologies and they say, this is my lifestyle and I don't want to change it. So I'm going to pick from a theology or a church or a denomination that suits my needs. And that's wrong. The Apostle Paul spoke often about another gospel, a false gospel, a false Jesus. So he was asking me about the challenges in his generation and how to reach them because they all assume, well, I'm just a Christian. But we have to follow the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. 
Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water and said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So what do we notice constantly about the greatest prophet that ever lived? Number one, he has a humility. When it was time for his ministry to transition, he allowed it to happen. He didn't say, well, I know Jesus is here and he's really good, but I'm kind of like second in command here. No. When the time was come for him to let it go, he did, and he acquiesced. He transitioned to Jesus. And I know that my mentor has often taught me about ministry, to hold on loosely. You don't own the people. You know, you don't know that you will always be in that position. God may move you on, right? But hold on loosely as if you're trying to hold sand. It just slips through your finger. It's up to God to determine what we do with ministry. It's up to God to determine what direction we go in. And John here was willing to let Jesus take that place, which was awesome of him. So a few questions that we may ask is, What are we holding on to that the Lord may want us to let go, that we may be saying that we're letting go, but we're not truly letting go? Let me take a step further. What are we holding on to in life that's hindering our walk with the Lord? And when I ask those questions, everybody thinks of something. I know what's going on in my brain. I don't know what's going on in your brains. But that's between you and the Lord. What is it that's stifling maturity or stifling growth or a deeper walk with the Lord? Now let me get a little bit more personal. Who, what relationship may be hindering your walk with the Lord and your growth? That every time you get to, and I've had these people in my life, friends or uh, peers or whatever the case may be, and, and God moved us apart because it wasn't healthy and he wanted more for me. So think about those relationships as well. A relationship that may bring us down instead of edify us. Verse 29, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, Jewish people would have understood this because at the time, the temple was still there. There were still still animal sacrifices. There was still an atonement for sin based on the shedding of innocent blood of the animal. And that was only a type or a precursor of the true Lamb, Jesus, that was going to come. And in this time period, he did. And he was going to be slaughtered and and shed his innocent blood so that we could have eternal life. So behold the Lamb of God. I actually was, years ago, we were at a a concert. It was a Christian concert. And it was my wife and I and some friends. And this woman was a new believer. And the song was, you know, blessed is the Lamb or worthy of the Lamb. And we're all singing and clapping. And she nudges me and she goes, psst, who's the Lamb? (laughs) You know? And I said, it's Jesus. I'll explain it to you after the song. You know what I'm saying? But the Jews at the time would have understood this, this circumstance, this situation, because they would have to give up their cute little lambs. And, and every day and night, there was a lamb being sacrificed in the temple. Awful, offensive. But it really gets us to understand how offensive sin is and how much it condemns us and how much we needed a remedy because of our sin. So it was a real, a real heart check uh, being in that system. Verse 31 and 34, John said, I did not know him, meaning Jesus, but it was revealed to him. Now, 
You may say, well, how could that be? And I'm only speculating. John and Jesus were actually related. Jesus grew up normally. He's the son of God. So his influence or his, he wouldn't be compromising because he was fully deity. So God, the father had no concern about Jesus being polluted by society. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was born to elderly parents. And we can surmise that they probably passed away as he was growing. And he was, he grew up in the wilderness. They said he had a leather belt and he ate honey and, and locusts and probably looked like a wild man. But he was isolated from society. Why? Because he was not the son of God. Because he could have been influenced possibly. So God wanted to separate him from the corrupt society where everybody was compromising, had impure relationships, and he didn't want John to be a part of that. So he isolated him. And then he brought him out to society. But, he, but Jesus said, I didn't, or John said, I didn't recognize him. It's very possible that because of different upbringings that maybe by faith he didn't recognize him. But he did recognize him spiritually. Now, I'm going to steal something from Pastor Mike. And in my thievery, I always give credit. So if I take something from another pastor, I always give credit. Pastor Mike said something really awesome a few Wednesdays ago when he was speaking about Abraham. Abraham's had such a, a close walk with the Lord that he recognized the Lord when the Lord came in human form uh, prior to the New Testament. He recognized him. So the question is, did everybody recognize him? I'm going to say probably not. I'm going to say probably not. In John chapter 12, which we'll get to, Jesus is speaking about glorifying the Father's name. And the Father speaks from heaven and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Now, maybe he had a very deep James Earl Jones type of voice, or it was very booming, but the Bible says that some around thought it thundered. People hear, hear God's voice, some recognize it, but others were like, hey, is it supposed to rain today? I heard this booming sound. That's really key. And the question is, do you recognize God's voice? Because with this competing voices, I've got to be honest with you, every day... My flesh tries to tell me something. Maybe Satan plants thoughts in my head. And God's speaking to me. And I have to discern the three um, and, and figure out which one is him. And oftentimes, well, most of the time, all the time, we can do that through the word and through the counsel of the Holy Spirit. But some people say, oh, the Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit won't tell us to do anything that's against his word. Do we recognize, are we trained on his voice? Years ago, when I worked the uh, 3 to 11 shift, I would come home like clockwork at 11.30. And my wife was pregnant. And she would be in the living room waiting for me to come home. And I opened the door. And the baby didn't move. Once I started speaking to my wife, she said he moved. And this happened every night. Even in the womb, past the amniotic fluid, the child was starting to get trained on dad's voice. And when he came home from work, he would move. He would respond to it. And that's a, a small example, but as believers, are we trained on God's voice? Are we familiar with it? Because if we're not, we'll hear other voices, and we'll do things that seem right, but its way is in destruction, as the, as the Proverbs tell us. 32, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And this is another glimpse of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see a lot of the Holy Spirit in this book and learn a lot about that third person of the, of the Godhead. But two things we notice. Number one is God, God's approval. The son had the father's approval. This is my son, hear him. 
we, we keep seeing these instances where God speaks from heaven and, and, and um, you know, confirms uh, his son's message. So God's approval. And I believe that everyone in this room would want God's approval. Right? I mean, why are we here if we don't? The second thing that we see is that the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Son and the Spirit worked in concert in Christ's ministry on the earth. And that's what we want, God's approval and the power of the Holy Spirit. I know there's a commercial that said, don't leave home without it. This is definitely something that you don't want to leave home without because we get out into the world and there's pressures and there's temptations and there's trials. And we have to negotiate our way around through this world, but we need these two to do it. A lot of good lessons in here. Verse 33. I'm going to tell you that Luke's gospel elaborates what John the Baptist Baptist did. His mission, his mandate was to preach the repentance Repentance for the remission of sins, and that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I know that some Bible teachers believe, well, the Holy Spirit, we get it, that's an easy one, but what's this thing about fire? Some Bible teachers believe that, well, it could be in the book of Acts with the tongues of fire, which makes sense. However, if we look at context, in the context that's spoken of in Scripture, In Luke's gospel especially, he speaks about the winnowing fan in his hand and and he'll separate the the good from the bad and he'll burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, which is an allusion to hellfire. Yes, we preach hell here. It exists, but nobody has to go here. Nobody has to go there, and that's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. And from uh, from John the Baptist to Jesus, the message was very clear, get off the fence. What are we sitting on the fence about? There's only two paths to take in, in the world. The Lord's path, God's path, or the devil's path. And that's it. Acts 17.30, the Apostle Paul said that prior to Christ, God overlooked some of the religious ignorance. But now he, makes, he calls all men everywhere to repent, to repentance. And we are in the time of now, because we're in the time after Paul said this. Repentance. You want to know what's wrong with the church? We can always talk about things that are wrong with the church. And when I say the church, I mean the ecclesia, I mean the church in the 21st century. We can have all these discussions about what's wrong and be in agreement, but one of the big things that's a problem is there's no repentance. A lot of churches aren't preaching repentance because it's about numbers. It's about tithe money. And if you hurt somebody's feelings, they may not write a check to you. They may not show up. Repentance is very important. And repentance is very simple. It's as simple as, I know with my life, I was walking on my path, and I was doing my thing, and I wasn't saved, and I ran into the cross. And I had to make a decision. Well, I could keep going and walk around the cross and step over Jesus and continue my condemnation before God, or I could turn from my self-directed life and my sin, turn around, because I received his forgiveness, I received what he did on the cross, and then move in his direction. That's repentance. Do you guys really want me to tell you what you want to hear, or do you want to hear the truth? The more any leader tells a person what they want to hear, the more grief and aggravation he gets, or she gets. I've got to be honest with you. My counsel, my discipleship is, you came to me with problems, I'm trying to help you through them, and this is the way. Right? That's the way to do it. 
But I have other counsel that I have to compete with, worldly counsel that says, you need to love yourself. You need to stroke yourself, hug yourself. I can't compete with that. I just can't do it. And I won't compete with it. The more we preach the hard things of the scripture, the more people come to the church because they want to hear the truth. Anybody can be pressured to bow under pressure. If that's something that I have to do, I'm just going to quit because it's against everything that I believe. It's against my conscience, right? You don't think that John the Baptist got a lot of pressure? He got a lot of heat for what he was doing? He didn't tell anybody what they wanted to hear, so what'd they do? They imprisoned him and they cut his head off, right? So repentance is very important. 35, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he said, as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, again. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Remember, here's a transition from John's followers to the truth of the Messiah, you know, and and the natural progression, the fulfillment. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So here's the transition. John the Baptist didn't say, hey, Jesus, these guys are my followers. What are you doing muscling in on my territory? You know, he knew enough to make the proper transition because he was a humble person. Verse 42, Jesus changes Peter's name. Now we see this with the apostle Paul was Saul. Uh, Jacob became Israel. Abraham and Sarah had their names changed. And this is really symbolic because when we walk with the Lord, his desire is to change everything about us so that we can glorify him. The name change is an outward symbol that should be reflective of how our hearts have changed. You see a lot of that. We see it in baptism as well. Baptism, when you go into the water and I bring you up, I'm not noticing a glow. I haven't seen that when I baptized anybody. But it's it's symbolic of what's going on inside the heart. And there's so many uh, pictures of baptism. In Revelation 2, it says, To him who overcomes, I will give a new name. So don't get too attached to your name right now. (laughs) And for those of you who don't like your name, don't worry about it. It's going to be changed. (laughs) Are we new creatures in Christ? Are we living up to the name change? Or is our lives just window dressing? Sometimes... As believers, we allow our relationship with the Lord over the years to get stale when we should be submitting to that change of life, to being a new creature in Christ, as the Bible speaks about. Verse 43, the last few verses. It says, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. He's starting to talk like Jesus now. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no guile or deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Some of these things we, we look at and we're a little curious about. Why did, why did he say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, if you know your history, there was a Roman garrison station there. Maybe they um, you know, had issues there and, and it was a poor influence. Um, we can maybe guess that Jonah was from Galilee, uh, just north of Nazareth, and he was a disobedient prophet. Um, there could be some other things. Nobody really knows the exact reason, but for whatever reason, the town didn't have a good reputation. What a better place for the Lord to grow up and shine his light of truth. For, verse 47, Jesus knew Nathanael before he even met him. Now, this is wild because he goes, well, I saw you under the fig tree. It's quite possible that as he was under the fig tree, he went to get away from everybody. and He was looking for some quiet time and there was nobody there. So he's saying, well, Jesus, how would you know that unless you have some supernatural insight? So if you're wondering why uh, he was so blown away by that statement, it's probably because there was nobody else around, but Jesus knew it anyway, and it clicked. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. How many of you hold on to that one in tough times? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God knows our ways intimately. Intimately. And that is comforting to me. You know, even if you're alone in this life, if you're in a season where you're, there's just nobody's around, you're by yourself, God is there for you. If he knew as he put you together in your mother's womb, then he's with you now as well. Another thing that came up at the young adults group on, si on, on Friday was, again, the questions from that generation about, well, you know, it's how you translate it and it's open to interpretation. And basically what you're saying is, I don't like what God has to say. It, it affects me because here's my lifestyle and God's saying something that I might have to change. I might have to give up. And I said to the young man who asked me, um, God is not an because I said so type of parent. We may do that at times because we get frustrated with our kids. Because I said so, don't ask me again. But God doesn't do that. You see, his laws for us are good. He doesn't do anything that would hurt us. If we follow his laws in the scripture, our life will be more at peace. That's his design for us. Well, we say, but I want that. But I think that's right. And God says, no, you don't understand. I can see the future. You can't. If you do that, you're going to be hurt. And what happens is sometimes the people come back later and they say, gee, you were right. This is what God says. And if I would have followed this, I would have not had so much pain and heartache. So God is not an because I said so type of God. His ways is because he loves us. He made us. He framed us a certain way. And there's a lot of things that we're all unique. We have the unique fingerprints and unique DNA pattern. But there's a lot of things about people that are just the same. Whether it's in the church or thousands of years or across the millennia, we're, we're very similar. So what he did was he designed his, his uh, instruction manual. You know, when you buy a new car, you want to know how, what everything, how everything works. The knobs and the buttons and the shifters, 
And God gave us an instruction manual, and that's the Bible. It's not to hurt us. It's to help us. But we get deceived in thinking that it's to hurt us, or God is a, he wants to kill our fun, and that's just not the case. I've never had so much fun in my life until I became a believer, because then I did it his way. I saw you under the fig tree, and you were impressed, and I'm paraphrasing. Jesus is probably saying to him, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, if that, if that does it for you, follow me and we're going to go for a, a wild ride here. Verse 51, and he references to uh, Genesis 28, Jacob's dream, you know, Jacob's ladder in, in, uh, in Genesis, which Pastor Mike is going to cover. He speaks about the angels uh, ascending and descending, if you cover that passage, and Jesus is referring to it. What, is the, what does it mean? You're going to see this. Oh, wow, we're going to see angels going up and down. It's like an elevator. It's like a really cool Christmas play on tethers. No. The whole point of it is access to God. When Jesus died on the cross, when he said it is finished, in the temple, he tore that huge veil from top to bottom, which separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelled, or a part of him did, he chose to do that, from mankind. So what, what he's saying, Jesus, is I'm the way. I'm the way to access. Jesus spoke of himself as I am the gate. Uh, Jesus is the latter. Jesus is all those things. When we look at this portion of scripture, we see transition. Now, the obvious is the transition from John the Baptist to Christ. However, however, I believe that we're hurting ourselves if we don't see our own transitions here or what we should be doing. Number one, a life of carnality to a life of maturing in Christ. Pastor Vinny has told me he's done young adults for years. And uh, he builds them up, builds them up in the word, and then he preaches some hard things to get them to walk. And he says, Pastor Joe, inevitably, every time they disappear. It's like shocking the pool. But then they come back again. And there's this ebbing and flowing in that group. Because it's hard to hear, I've got to change my lifestyle. Right? They're having enough issues as it is. The second point is that we go from a life of me-centeredness, which is easy to do. Easy to do. We look at ourselves in the mirror every day. We see me all the time. And we, in, in our eyes, as we look out into the world, it's always from my point of view. So we go from a transition from me-centered to other-centered, which is, which is what God wants for us. Three, to transition from the life of the old man and the flesh to the new man and the life of the spirit. So, as we close today, what is it today that the Lord through his message is saying to us all? What is he asking us to take off and put on? What is he asking us to leave behind and move forward with? What is he asking us to stop sitting the fence on and make a real commitment? Only we can answer that question. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, your word as always. We thank you for uh, the conviction. We thank you for-